2: Welcome to the Q&A, everyone. Uh, Milo called me earlier and said he's not feeling well, so he's not going to be on with us today. And we just found out that Forrest is sick as well, so she won't be with us today either. But Tom, would you like to introduce Jeff?
1: Yes, absolutely. We have a very special guest today. This is Jeff. And for those of you who listen to the midweek show, Bigfoot in History, uh, Jeff is the guy that does the narration on that. And I'm going to let him... Fill you in on what his professional background is. But before we get going, I just want to say thank you to everybody for your excellent questions. You keep the topic alive and going. And um, and also, if you like the show, let us know. Send us a like and subscribe and share with your friends. And if you want to support the program, you can do so. We've got a link in Patreon. And we'll be posting a shout out to all of our latest Patreons. So, with that said, I'm going to hand this off to Jeff. And, Jeff, tell us a little about yourself and your both your background with audio and what you're currently doing.
0: I, I was going to ask when you say professional background, which one do you mean? Because there's too many. Um, well, so all I, of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I have experience. Uh, from years ago in radio and, and audio production, things like that, and, and just enjoy doing it more more or less as a hobby these days. But um, I we had gotten together uh, through mutual contacts because I, I was looking for a place to just do some audio recording and, and uh, kind of get my feet back into that world. So this has been a good opportunity for me to do that. And I appreciate it. My, my full-time gig, my full-time job most days is in ministry, so I serve as a pastor in North Dakota. I'm way up here. I've been in ministry since, well, since my late teens, so uh, 20-something years now. I've, I've lost track. I think it's up to almost 25 years. Uh, no, it's longer than that. It's, it's oh, coming no, we're, up we're on not, 30. We're
1: not holding you to ages <laughs> or anything like that.
0: <laughs> it, it's been a while, but no, I, uh, you know, and I, I do a few other things, too. I've side projects and things, but I really enjoy audio work. And like I said, I've been in radio a couple of times. I did radio in college. I, I worked in radio um, full time for a short period of time in those early years when my oldest was a, was a baby really. And, uh, and just kind of miss it. I enjoy playing with audio equipment and uh, I've been a sound guy, even in church since I was like a seventh grade or something. So that that's kind of my background.
1: And your um, your academic background is you have just completed, or you're in the process of completing your doctorate.
0: I am just on the last part of it. I am about to enter the what they call the dissertation and project phase, which is probably the busiest point of it. So I'll be doing my. It's on uh, leadership. So I'll be doing my project on uh, on developing leadership training system for our pastors here in the Dakotas and and also just. Uh, a lot of writing is going to be involved. So I finished all my classwork, all of my classes, including one, I just wrapped up one on on theories of learning and principles in higher education. I think that's the right name for that class. I never get it right. But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm finishing up the doctorate. I've got a master of arts in religion and a bachelor of science in religion as well prior to that. So.
1: Okay. And um, you and I talked a while back. It was just fascinating. It has nothing to do with Bigfoot, but some of the brutal um, academics <laughs> requirements. One of the one of the uh, guys you're talking about, one of the uh, instructors, would give you a verse, and I believe he had to write down what ten or twenty questions, and you come back the next day, and what are 10, 10 or twenty more?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was in my undergrad work, and then. The, the class part of this one, we had to take just a, a couple of verses in Romans and and dissect them down to the level of writing what amounted to about a 25-page paper on it. So I've, I'm familiar with the deep dive concept and research. I've learned a lot on that front. At,
1: uh, well, that kind of dovetails into, um, and you've been doing the last 17 chapters on Ivan Sanderson's.
0: Books. Yeah, I think I started on chapter three.
1: Okay, that's, that's right. right.
0: Okay. I, I didn't start right at the beginning, but I, I picked up about chapter three or maybe chapter four. So I'm, I've, I've been through most of the book at this point. It's, it's been fascinating. I really enjoy Sanderson's style and the way he digs in and, and does his research. And when I, you know, I think we'd had one conversation of, ahead of chapter 17 because you told me some of what was coming. in, And, and so then I kind of read ahead, which I do a little bit anyway. But I I read ahead and looked at it and was like okay well yeah this this is interesting this is curious there's a couple of places in the chapter where I was like eh, you know it, it I, I wasn't sure how to say it but it's like Sanderson does a really good job of digging into the the data and kind of like hey, I think he calls himself a journalist you know he, I don't know if that's his first profession as a journalist but he talks about his journalistic kind of curiosity and. There's a couple places when I was reading this chapter, I was like, you know, he he just quotes, um, I can't remember the guy's name now. The it, was, Ibn, it was a friend of his, it was a Jewish scholar. Ibn Aaron. Yeah, he, he quotes a, a pretty long block from him, but doesn't really do anything else to the text there. And it was stuff in that block that I was like, you know, I, I don't know much about this other guy. I've never really heard his name. I kind of Googled him and read a couple things about him. I, I Google a lot while I'm reading because I'm trying to, one, get pronunciations right as much as possible. And there's probably listeners who go, well, you messed up a few. And I don't doubt that I did. But, um, yeah, there were a couple of things that that Aaron quoted in that block text. And I, I tried to Google one of them, and I can't find a thing for it. So it's like, I don't even know where it came from. But I get interested in this kind of stuff. So then I go digging and, like, deep diving. And I think at one point when I was just recently... <laughs> We'll call it researching for fun because I'm interested in, in all of this. I I probably had like 20 tab windows open with the different stuff I was trying to search and connect and and double check and, you know, doing my own version of Sanderson, I guess. But,
1: One of the questions that I wanted to kind of bring up, and, and we'll mention this in the intro, and that is Sanderson made a distinction between... Correct me if I'm wrong, Will, because I haven't read chapter 17 yet in its entirety. But a distinction between um, the Nephilim, which was a biblical, I don't know, Jeff. I'm going to have you explain what what the Nephilim is versus Bigfoot. And he made a clear distinction between those two. Did I did I get that right, Will?
2: Yeah, he actually. Well, it was it was his friend, the the Jewish scholar, and I believe it was from uh jewish commentaries and i'm not sure how all that works but um I, i'm sure they they go into depth with a lot of things that aren't in you know the bible or or um, i can't think what the name of the book is they use but um
0: the the mishnah the talmud there's there's a lot of different jewish writings right that, and he he quotes one of them he mentioned was Leviticus Rabbah, and I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. I, I, like said, I said, I got to dig and I was fascinated, but I couldn't find the quote that he quoted from Leviticus Rabbah in any of the translations I have. Now, I know the guy was a, a linguistic scholar, mm-hmm. so maybe he did his own, but I, I couldn't find anything even close to it. And I was like digging because it was interesting.
2: Um, well, it was interesting oh, how they highlighted the difference when they, they talk, because everybody out there in the world today says, oh, you know, that's, that's interested in the subject says, oh, these, these are the Nephilim, and, and it's not, it's cl- not, clearly not w- from what he said, because he talked about the Nephilim would have actual beds with an actual measurement, I think it was 18 feet, you know, so they weren't something hairy out living in the forest. Uh, but later, yeah. he did talk about that, and I think there were actually two different names they used and they translated into, uh, the hairy ones and mighty ones of the hunt. And apparently they right. plagued, they plagued the Jews after they fled Egypt for, for years.
0: Well, and the interesting thing for me about the hairy ones is because, uh, and, and one of the things I like about, uh, what he quoted from the, the rabbi there was, you know, Hebrew is a language that's just built for wordplay. You can do all kinds of things because the, there's no vowels and words that sound alike and are spelled the same, and you, you, you can have all kinds of fun with them. Um, but at the same time, it can also lead people down weird paths. And there's, there's um, in Hebrew, like, study, they, they talk about five levels of understanding for the Bible. So you have, like, the, the plain surface meaning that's right there. Then you have kind of the, like, hidden meaning where you, you dig into, like, these word plays and these other things. And you have what they call midrash, where you try to make, like, Connections between things to to derive principles, and then they have what they call the secret meaning, and then the uber secret secret meaning, like the secret of the secret. And and guys like the Zohar, who are quoted in this chapter, do a lot of of that secret of the secret type of stuff. They're known for being just straight up mystics at times, you know. And uh, the idea though is the thing about the hairy ones that I found interesting in here, and I was trying to. This is one of the things that drove me to kind of do some more reading. Was so. Esau's name, and Esau's mentioned in here, Esau's name means, like, Harry. You know, he's like, what a nickname. I don't know how Harry he must have been as a baby, but um, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's called Harry right out of the womb. And the other one is is Red or Edom, like uh, Ruddy. And and in the biblical text, these these words kind of get interchanged. And then what happens on top of that is... Um, Esau's descendants move into the area around Mount Seir, and Seir is the Hebrew word for hairy, but it's understood to be a mountain of some sort or a mountain range, kind of where, like, if you're familiar with Petra, you know the area where they filmed the the Last uh, Crusade for Indiana Jones, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. yeah, it's it's in that area of the of the world in that kind of deserty sort of thing, and so I, I saw what he did with the word hairy ones, but it, it might as well just be like descendants of Esau. And honestly, that's kind of the biblical narrative. The descendants of Esau are kind of at war with the descendants of Jacob, you know, the Israelites, because Jacob is Israel. And so there's a, there's a brotherly war that translates down through their generations. And it so happens, you know, Esau's people get, both because his nickname was Harry, and because his name means hairy, so all of his descendants called Edomites or Seirites or whatever, any of those things, would typically come across. You can translate as hairy ones, but I, I thought that maybe that was a stretch to say that everybody descended from Esau was a big, you know, like some kind right. of hairy being. You know, it's interesting. And, uh, though you
2: mentioned hairy and red. You know, these creatures mm-hmm. are typically reddish brown in color. <laughs> Whether, yeah, I had read that bearing. in
0: previous chapters. Yeah, whether that yeah, has any bearing. But it is kind of an interesting side note. It is. I was I was fascinated, too, because one of the things that Sanderson touches on all the time is kind of the geography and the, the climate, if you will, like the cli- overall climate. And the, the area around there, like I've been to Israel. I've not been over toward like Petra in that area. But the, the area of that landscape is very much desert and very it would be very unhospitable to what he typically sees these creatures inhabiting. So I didn't know how he would reconcile that. He doesn't really t- touch on it that I remember,
2: you know, um, you know, I'll tell you something that we have a current active, very active site in Arizona of all places.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That would be a similar, uh, geography type of, or climate, climate. There's another word he uses for that. and I can't remember it now, but yeah, and I was fascinated by that, and and just the idea, you know, trying to connect all the pieces across there, were were interesting to me, for sure.
1: Jeff, let me ask you. There's, um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, the Nephilim. You know, they're they're, you know, they're definitely not Bigfoot, but the Nephilim weren't the only. I guess you just call them giants. Wasn't there something else called Raphaim and um i'm i'm struggling now there there i think there's a raphaim and there's another uh group that was the anakim maybe i don't know can you comment on that
0: oh the anakim yeah i think if i don't if and i'm not looking at anything off so this is off the top of my head but the anakim if i'm remembering right are what supposedly like goliath and his family were descendant like the descendants of anak when the when the Israelites were getting ready to go back in the promised land, you know, they sent spies into the land and the spies came back and reported, Hey, there's really big guys there. You know, there's like giants. We don't want to go in there. Um, and of course, Goliath, according to the Bible, if you, if you figure out Goliath's height, I did this once for kids on like a VBS thing. We made a, uh, a life-size replica height wise. We didn't, couldn't do a lot more with it, but supposedly Goliath is nine foot nine. That's not tiny. And, And supposedly he had four other brothers that were equally large. Um, And I don't know. I'm not good at math,
1: but (sighs) 9.9.
0: Nine foot, nine inches tall. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So definitely above like the tallest NBA players we have currently. And, (laughs) And we do see some really tall guys. And there are also, you know, like there's, there's people even modern who, who get excessively tall, whether it's because of a condition or whatever. So I mean, I think a lot of people speculate about, about Goliath because it's him and his family, but there apparently were other giants in the land too. Like I said, the Anakim, if I remember it right off the top of my head, were the ones that were considered the giants when the spies went in and said, we we don't want to mess with these guys. Um, We'll stay out here in the desert. It's actually kind of what they were saying. Uh, It's better out here, but in the end, they go in and and take over the land, of course, according to According to uh, judges, really is kind of the story of that. So,
1: well, and what I found interesting was there was one of those, and I think it was Anakim, but correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, a king Og, who was absolutely huge. I mean, he was even gargantuan. I think mm-hmm. by uh, Goliath. Uh, I mean, he was. His, wasn't his bed? Came out to like uh, 13 feet or something, or am I?
0: Oh, I would have to look that up. I recognize his name, but I, I don't remember those details. Like I don't remember the specifics. He was so. big. He was real big. <laughs> <laughs> there were some really big guys, you know what I mean? There, there were And the Nephilim to go back to that point. That's, that's a, a place where a lot of scholars just kind of throw up their hands and go, we don't really have a good answer. We, we know, you know, what the text says, but there's not an elaboration on that. Um, you can find a little more. And I know that, uh, you know, Sanderson quoted that about the, you know, because people would fall down. I think he, I think that was the Rambam or somebody who was one of those Jewish rabbis who, who had said that in his commentaries, um, that that's what that really meant. You know, that the idea of the Nephilim, it's just somebody, you know, they'd fall down on their face in front of them. Um,
1: yeah. And I think, um, I read some, some literature on that, that, um, as interesting as that is, you know, it means to fall. It, it, uh, according to this guy, a uh, gentleman named Dr. Heiser, who said that it, it doesn't really hold up. And I don't remember the exact arguments why, but um, he said, really, <clears throat> uh, they really were giants. You know, these, these things are, they're big. They're called yeah. giants for a reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe, you know, that, that there were definitely some giant guys that, The text is pretty straightforward about that. So you you don't even have to do wordplay at that point. That's on the plain surface meaning.
1: (laughs) I had no idea that there were, what did you say, five potential meanings or five definite meanings of? Yeah, that's
0: the uh, it's like uh, and I tried to pull it. So uh, I tried to pull something so I could see them because I would mess up the words. But they're the words in Hebrew. They have Peshat, which is the straight meaning. And then Remez, which is the, the secondary meaning, like the hints and allusions in the text, they call Drush or Midrash. That's when you like pull out moral meanings and things like that. And then Sod is like secret. And then they have Sod of Sod, which is really secret secrets. Um, so that's that's typical Jewish like theology is you have all these different levels of meaning uh, potentially within the text. And obviously. Uh, you know most most christian scholars would prefer to stay right on the top level which is the peshat the basic plain meaning they'll occasionally go into that secondary level um you know of like looking for hints in the text and 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 things like that uh, obviously they you know we as christian scholars would pull a lot of like the third level too which is the the kind of moral principles and things like that but very rarely does any christian commentator want to deal on the like secret hidden stuff or anything trying to dig into that. It it could tend to get a little weird, you know, if you do that. So
1: is it kind of a little bit um, subjective to the reader's interpretation or?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's very subjective when you get into that level. And I, I'm not saying no Christians do that, but it is, it's just considered very, um, mystical would be the best English word for us. You know, it's like the mystics of the, of the Jewish faith sort of thing. Um, I'm, I'm really intrigued a lot of times with digging at the second level where you, you find little things in the text that, that hint at deeper meanings and that it, it's one of the reasons why I'm still trying to learn Hebrew better. I, I know a little bit, I always say I know enough to be dangerous. Um, potentially make a mistake but I I like digging into those little word plays that are in Hebrew because there's so many of them and there's there's no way to translate a word play in English or anything you know you just have to be able to see it in the text for what it is so you know
1: one of the things that I'm curious and I I don't know if you got into this in any of your studies but um, ancient Mesopotamian uh, writings you know cuneiform and that sort of thing, you know, Gilgamesh and and all that, which was, had some sort of parallels to, you know, to the Genesis flood story, but it was definitely different. Um, Have you studied any of that? And do you have, uh, because there was a, um, I briefly read where I think Gilgamesh had a companion, a hairy friend that was all intents and purposes sounds like he had a friend that was a big but i just grendel wasn't it well grendel is the scandinavian um guy but this one actually goes back to ancient near east um you know kind of kind of like well pre-flood i think um i don't know i'm i'm scrambling for words here jeff any (laughs) thoughts on this (laughs)
0: I am not familiar as much with the specifics of that one, but in general, like the the kind of parallels that you see across a lot of ancient literature uh, help point back to, to some real common source material for the story itself. That, I mean, there's really fascinating stuff across multiple cultures. Cause you've got like, I've seen some stuff on the, the Chinese language where the Chinese pictographs represent things that you see in Genesis. Like, you know, like salvation, I think is like, uh, two people in a boat basically or something like that and it stuff that recalls like the Noah story and things like that 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 are like embedded within the Chinese characters which is fascinating because you think about that it means that the culture itself like the these stories are based on real things this this is a real truth that underlies it and it translated through oral you know oral tradition and oral memory until it was able to be written down and of course like uh, from what we can tell, a lot of parts of the Old Testament some you know, are some of the oldest writing anywhere. So they were the earliest committed to memory. Or you know, that's to, interesting. The paper.
1: I read uh, sometime back, and this I wish, uh, you know, unfortunately Forrest was, uh, she's taken ill. So, you know, we hope she gets better, like, as soon as possible. But her and I were talking the other day about the uh, some of the indigenous people in northeastern Russia, Siberia that are you know, for all intents and purposes, they look like what we would consider to be the uh, the Eskimos of Alaska Probably are I'm sure sure they came across the land bridge. But in this article that I was reading and we were talking about this is that they were their lineage, their DNA I think was actually traced back to, turkey um Hmm. so if we have any anthropologists out there if you want to get a hold of me and tell me i'm totally wrong i'm fine with that (laughs) but i thought it's interesting that okay so they came from turkey and then across the land bridge and then you know we have all the various native american um tribes that kind of came down so i'm going turkey seemed like there was a big boat at one time in turkey right
0: there, there was, yeah, that's where it supposedly came to land, uh, yeah. somewhere in the Turkish mountains. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I, I just find that interesting. Um, that you know, I don't know, Will, did you in any of your anthropo- anthropology studies, did you, did you guys get into that at all, or did you study any of that? No, I was
2: more physical anthropology.
1: Okay. Digging in the dirt and getting the bones and, and that sort of thing. That's it. That's the fun stuff. Um, but, yeah, anyway, I was just, I, I found that interesting because it makes a connection to, and I don't know if there's any stories in the Native American uh, lore of, you know, Big Flood and, and all of that, but um, I was, I'm interested that you said there was something like that in the Chinese culture.
0: Yeah, I wish I could remember the specific um, the specific characters that I'd I'd read about. I'd read this in some in a book one time about different Chinese characters that that had tie-ins with things from the Genesis account, the creation account, including the flood, you know, early Genesis stuff. I, I'd be fascinated now to go back and look if there's a word for giant what that comes across as in Chinese. I'm sure there has to be one. Uh,
1: well, they do have, uh, in China, well, I think it's probably more in, in Western China, they have their own Bigfoot. It's called the urine, I think.
2: Yeah, that's one of, there's actually, uh, let me think, I think there's two. Um, and again, that's in Sanderson's book, too. He distinguishes between the two.
0: Yeah. I, I remember reading some of the Asian stuff. I, I've been really fascinated with Sanderson's stuff too on on anthropology in particular and like his observations. You know, obviously written in like the fifties and sixties in a time when people weren't trying to be as politically correct. He he says some things that would come across to a modern listener as, as probably rude, I guess, but but the observation itself is really correct. I mean, he's making accurate observations of what he sees and
2: yeah. And you have to look at the time period, <clears throat> you know, yeah. there are different terms and things used in the fifties than there are today, obviously.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. But even beyond the language, just sometimes it's, you, people are so careful about not wanting to say, well, this is what this is, or, you know, this looks like, this looks like this, and this leads to this. And you know, that Sanderson in this chapter, in chapter 17, he talks about the different, like, kind of overall, I don't know if you'd call them races, but like Mongoloids and Negroids, you know, Caucasoids and how they interact and like how their characteristics flow through through successive generations. And like which ones the characteristics flow through more, you know, like which are more dominant. Hey, I mean, he goes through this whole little, little bit on that. And I was fascinated reading it because on just a sheer observational level, it, it's kind of obvious, but you don't hear people talk about things like that. Um, Typically, anymore, it's become so politically incorrect. To just observe reality sometimes, and and note what's really there. Um,
1: you know, one of the, I'm just going to throw a question in here real quick, and and I want to get back to our current discussion. But, um, Will, we have one of our one of our uh, listeners out there who wants to know if there's any reports of. You know, if, if birds travel in flocks, you have a murder of crows, deer and elk gather in herds, what would a group of Sasquatch be called? He says group sounds very bland.
2: Well, but, uh, that that's for the scientific community to figure out once, you know, they uh, are proven to be real. But I suppose, you again, you'd have to look at other large primates and see how they're grouped what do they call a you know a group of gorillas or chimpanzees etc
1: okay so that's a good point
2: i mean how do you Um, how do you list a group of people
1: depends who the group is that's true (laughs) (laughs) um so well what do you call a group of chimpanzees
2: well, that's a good point. I don't know offhand.
1: I don't either. Uh, well, we'll have to ask for us when we get her back. Um, but so, getting back to to Sanderson's book, um, and you know, he makes a clear distinction between Nephilim and and Bigfoot. Um, Jeff, what, what um, and he was quoting a a rabbinical scholar, right? Or right. a friend of his, yeah. that, was a, that was a rabbi. Are there any other, I'm just curious if there's, and this is something that has kind of been a question of mine for a number of years, because, you know, we have, uh, you know, Neanderthal is, uh, came up through, there. there's a time when Neanderthals were in the, Near East, and I'm just curious if there's anything that you've heard of in in either ancient Near East, Near East text, lore, legends, what have you, or Jewish texts or legends that would talk about some other type of creature like a Neanderthal or even a Bigfoot, um, you know, besides the Nephilim and the Anakim and that sort of thing.
0: Can't think of any off the top of my head. I one of the things I've got on my uh, my Kindle for reading that I'm still digging through is that uh, there's a whole series of books called Legends of the Jews that is very much extra biblical. It talks, you know, goes through a lot of the the biblical kind of account of like the different main characters: Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, Moses, all those guys, and kind of tells all these extra stories about them. I haven't gotten through very many of those. You can find them online, too, I think, and kind of search them out. But they were free downloads on Kindle. Um, But I'll I'll kind of keep my eyes open now. I've never really kind of looked for them in there before. But I, I am curious.
2: You know, with ancient peoples, too, it's instructive, I think, to kind of think about how maybe they would have worded something. It might not be as blunt as we would today, you know, in terms of, well, you know, where is this big hairy creature? They may have used something completely different that would be easily overlooked.
0: Yeah, there was something I noticed in uh, in this text too when he was talking about the hairy ones, and he brought up the idea of the, the scapegoat, and kind of tried to tie it to like these hairy creatures, as if there was a sort of you know humanish quality to the hairy hairy sacrifice that Aaron did, and that was one of the points where I was reading it, and I kind of I remember kind of looking at. the the text going "Mm," because that that particular ritual that he's referring to is something that the Jews do all have well they don't do it now because the temple doesn't stand but they did it from the time of Aaron all the way through the time of Jesus and about 40 years beyond because that's that's their Yom Kippur you know the, the traditional thing they have two goats they have the one and he he mentioned the Azazel thing which Azazel is a really obscure term like it's that's literally the only place it's used in all of the Bible. And it's kind of uh, it's like doing a lot of linguistic digging to try and get a good word for what that is. Most people think Azazel refers to like a some kind of demigod or deity or or potentially, you know, like a, a demonic thing, like a fallen angel. Um, but Azazel is the inscription that's given to the scapegoat, the one that they take. Like the lots are cast and then they take the one goat out into the wilderness. And according to Jewish tradition, they they throw it off a cliff because they don't want to risk it coming back. It's the one carrying <clears throat> all the sins for the year. So it's got to go. And uh, there's a lot of interesting like Jewish uh, history built up around that. And so seeing Aaron, Ibn, Ibn Aaron, I think that's his name, uh, take it on this different track, I was like, I'd never seen anything like that before. And I'm not really sure that it's, it's on the level, so to speak, or or maybe it's just kind of fanciful thinking because really the, this, the ritual he's talking about is something that's really well known and that was done in practice, even into, I don't know if we can call the time of Jesus modern times, but it's current enough that we've got a lot of data around it. So I was, it's like that one the, the other stuff about the hairy ones further back made more sense, but trying to tie that one into the to the lore of it was probably the weakest point of what I saw in his in his case, you know, like looking down there. Um, and then he quoted the Zohar so that he went completely full mystical at the end of that. But um, there's some really interesting stuff around the the scapegoat. It probably gets off of our track of the, the subject we're on. But there's some uh, some stories about the scapegoat and the rituals they would do even in the time of Christ and beyond it, like in the late first century from about 30 to 40, well 30 to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and they no longer did the sacrifice. There were some rituals they would do. They would have a red rope that they would tie on the scapegoat and they would also keep one on the door of the temple. And supposedly according to tradition, when the, the goat would die, the, rope would change color and then in 30 AD the rope stopped changing color and you can actually see this in the Jewish literature if you google it you can even see it so this was like they knew what they were doing and then something changed there and of course Christians have their their understanding of that but it it speaks right into that ceremony and the fact that they were really using actual goats and not some odd hairy creatures so just
3: wanted to yeah, throw was,
1: that in there. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Um, and I was you you actually answered one of the questions that, that I had, and that is uh, if you could kind of describe a little bit of the uh, the ritual, you know, with the two goats. But but you kind of went into it. One thing that you and I talked about with the two goats and it sort of amusing is one of the goats I want to make sure it does not come back. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they would, they would make sure it doesn't come back. Um, so here's here's a question that's kind of related to this, and then I'm going to follow up with another one. I think in at least one place, maybe a couple of places in the Old Testament, uh, I think Daniel uses the term watchers. And mm-hmm. do you have any, can you, do you have any understanding of that? And can you explain kind of what the uh, meaning of the watchers were?
0: I, I think I would be dropping into some real speculation territory now, but I, I do, I'm familiar with the, the concept. Yeah. I think in English we've pulled out this, you know, there's a phrasing we use who watches the watchers. Um, <laughs> but there's a, there's a real concept within scripture of, of what we, we can't see. You know, as opposed to like, which this was something else that was in this chapter, too, that really fascinated me because he talks about um, and maybe in the chapter before this, he talks about the fact that like uncorporeal beings, you know, spiritual beings or whatever, if you will, don't leave physical evidence as a general rule. And so there's there's a real acknowledgement within the Bible that there is a, a world beyond what we can see. Things that we we can't necessarily put physical um constraints on if you will like of, for evidence or things and i think the watchers from my understanding fall more in those categories they would be non-corporeal like spiritual type entities if i if my memory serving right and i am working completely off memory for that so um i'd have to pull it off or pull it up to kind of look at it to to have any better answer than that
1: no that's fine i i didn't mean to put you on the spot um yeah. um so in a nutshell i'm I'm just kind of going back to what we talked about a little bit ago and that is um the details on the nephilim and why the nephilim could not and would not they just it's not bigfoot it's it's something else we got the giants okay and that's really about the only thing you know from um you know f- from from my perspective that they have in common is they're both tall but that's yeah. it they're both tall and they walk on two legs and they got two arms but kind of the similarities in there um so the the details on the nephilim were i'm just going to go back and kind of one of the one of the rabbinical lines of thought is it just simply meant to fall you'd see one of these things, you'd be terrified and you would fall is that was that kind of correct or
0: yeah and i got that that, you know um, sanderson quotes that from aaron in the text you know about nephilim uh, and uses the verb no fell in hebrew which just means fall and and honestly nephilim i think and i think i've heard will say something similar to this is that they're they're probably not bigfoot type you know Um, entities either that there's a real probability in my brain that they're probably spiritual beings because Nephilim could very well be like the fallen angels of the early like they they kind of appear before the fall and then really don't show up again or not before the fall but before the flood sorry and the, the idea being that they're like fallen angels who have taken on some kind of form, and it would fit because when you see angels in the Bible of any sort, usually the first thing that happens is people freak out and are scared because most angels' first appearance and their first words are always, fear not. So, right, right. That always <laughs> if they're good angels,
1: yeah. you know? so yeah. I love these cute little cherubs with wings on them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, those little baby angel calendars are really not very accurate. But I, I think the Nephilim, for me, and this is just my opinion, really, I don't have a, a ton of scholarship to back it up other than what little I've read and seen. Um, and some commentaries that I respect that I've read is the, the idea that the Nephilim are like the fallen angels who came down and, and kind of took the advantage of the fall of man to to further corrupt the species until the flood and and i'm looking i i do have the chapter 17 kind of on my screen so i was looking at that cuz he quotes that same thing too from from Genesis 6 where you know man man is multiplying and the sons of those on high it actually says and that's that's where most people think they're the angels and they they create these you know or they are these nephilim potentially so
1: one of the questions I have is, you, you'd mentioned, um, and don't ask me where I thought in Genesis, it, it did mention that the Nephilim were before the flood and post-flood. And I think there is one of the lines of thought, there's a couple of lines of thought. One is, however they got here in the first place, they did it post-flood. And the other one is um, that possibly the flood was regionalized, highly, you know, a huge area, obviously, but regionalized, and therefore they could have been outside of the flood area. Um, So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, do you think it is possible, or is it in the biblical text, that uh, the Nephilim, some of them, they were before the flood, and then were, it was still a problem to some extent post-flood.
0: I I know they were definitely before the flood, because they are they are mentioned in Genesis 6 prior to, it, it even says, you know, in those days, the Nephilim were already in the land. So it, they were definitely around before the flood. After the flood, uh, it's a question. And I've heard the debates on whether or not the flood was localized or, you know, it, tradition. Right, right. I figured, I
1: figured you probably had, right? <laughs> worldwide,
0: yeah. I, I mean, in my brain, I grew up with the, the tradition of, you know, it's worldwide. I haven't really seen anything convincing that says, you know, it has to be that or it has to be only right, localized. Right. It was certainly enough. I do believe because scripture says it was enough to destroy, you know, uh, all of the life that was on earth because God had said regretted he'd made man. And only the only survivors were those encased in the ark. I I do hold to that because I'm sort of a literalist, but but to what extent it was required to make that happen, I don't right. know. Had we we don't know much about the geography of that time. I mean, it,
1: well, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I had I had thought about we that. We kind because...
0: of have an assumption that everything is just as it has been for you know, however long we go back.
1: Oh, no. And, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Maybe,
0: uh, maybe not all of we, but there are a lot of people that's that's just kind of the assumption that whatever it is has been for, you know, as long as, as, long as it's worth knowing. Right, right. right. What, a take assumption. a look at the
1: Black Sea and look at the Mediterranean. And uh, there's some other minor seas in there. Uh, and you could easily see where maybe that was an area that had just absolutely got wiped out with. With the flood, what we're seeing is uh, post-flood uh, topo- topography being formed, or you know, remnant, or whatever. i I'm, I'm. Not, if you look up layperson in the dictionary, there I am. So don't ask me; <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting. Um, yeah, and so that's that's one of the interesting topics. Is and also the, you know, we're getting a little bit off the Bigfoot subject here, but uh, the Tower of Babel, you know, the whole issue with that and and the separating of people by languages and, and all that. Was there, um, I'm curious if, you, if you're aware of any, uh, that would be like Mesopotamian uh, lore or, you know, Lord, yeah. not the right word, but so is there anything in there that you've heard of ancient Mesopotamian literature that talks about giants?
0: No, not that I know of. I, I, the Tower of Babel is an interesting case in the sense of it, it's one of those things in the Bible that I am really truly intrigued by because the, the underlying principle of it which is if everybody talks the same language and could all get along, it's there literally nothing that could stop, you know, and that's what God says. If these guys all talk the same language and do the same things, nothing's going to stop them. And at that point, confusion laid in and it's been that way ever since. Um, but I, I don't have any like real insights on any, any of the literature from, from that perspective for Bigfoot. I, uh, Honestly, I was just really, I, I think I told you this, Tom, and uh, I, I was really, when I was reading this chapter, and, and I've been interested as I go along the way, it's kind of like there are a lot of times I would love to just talk to you guys for like 10 minutes after reading one of these and go, I really want to hear what you think about this or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, that's why I'd sent a message this time going, if you guys have a conversation about this, I would love to be in on it because this is a subject oh, yeah. that's a little more near and dear to my heart, but. Well, I yeah, didn't know I,
1: that you were interested, so I think, yeah, well, we may have to have some future uh, discussions. I know I would like to, and, and Will would as well, so uh, that would be, yeah, that would be very interesting. Um, well, speaking of that, is there anything that you can think of off the top of your head now that you would say, hey, I got you on the phone, let's, you know, I got a question for you.
0: I should have saved my list, right? I didn't do that. Right? I, I'm just thinking back through through the various chapters and and the different times where I would I would see stuff that you know I'm like I've not really thought of that. Um, I think I've shared this with you before, Tom. We've talked a couple of times that you know Sanderson's phrasing and stuff gets me like it it ties me into knots every so often when I'm reading his his work because he has some really long parentheticals and the sides. So I hope people who listen can still follow through the whole like maze that is sometimes some of his paragraphs but um just you know the the observations he has about particularly the geography and the climatology of where these things are and why they would be in those areas i was really intrigued when i was reading the united states one and and there's something to be said for you know sanderson talks about you know what's in your own backyard you know the stuff that's close to home more that's another reason why this chapter really stuck out to me but you know the stuff in the United States about the different areas of the United States and where these things could possibly be. Because even now, you know, we're in, we're sixty years down the road from when Sanderson wrote. But even now, there's areas we just don't have a lot of exploration into, and we 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 don't really know what's in there. Like it's it's not easy to get in there, and if there is anything in there, you know, good luck finding it. Um, that kind of stuff really intrigues me. So I've been really enjoying getting to read this and kind of getting to to dig into it a little bit as well so i appreciate you guys giving me that opportunity you
2: know people don't understand just how big this country is i remember reading um about the bluff creek area for instance and if you were to drive up there you would think oh yeah it's a big area but it wouldn't impress you too much until you find out there's a hundred thousand square miles in that area Mm-hmm. And and I've been up there many times, and you can be in there one two weeks, never see another soul.
0: I I think it was New Jersey. I saw a statistic about New Jersey that the state of New Jersey was like sixty three percent undeveloped. And and that really struck me because everybody thinks of Jersey as like this just massive city, you know, basically like. Well, a lot of the East Coast, we, we kind of look at it that way. but Especially places but like just, New York.
2: You know, you think New York, yeah. is, you know, it's like, okay, it's this huge population. Well, New York City is what, on the southern southern border, isn't it? And yeah,
0: it's kind of the southern, southeastern tip, really. Yeah.
2: So you go north of there to the Adirondack Mountains and places like that, which has a, a big history of these creatures, lots of activity, and it's a really big, wild area. And you'd yeah, you never think that I, about New York. At least I wouldn't.
0: We, we went through upstate New York a few years ago on family vacation. We were at Niagara Falls and kind of winding our way down into Pennsylvania. So we drove a lot of back roads. We didn't get on the main highways and we were driving these two lane country roads out in the middle of nowhere. And those areas of New York were just as, as remote. I mean, there were farms and there were, we would drive 30 miles between two towns. You know, you just don't think of that when you think of New York and, and, i'll say this too there were a lot of like backwater you know we talk about hicks in the south but new york apparently has their own because we ran into a few of them (laughs) um we we stopped to buy maple syrup and we ran into one of the they wouldn't have been out of place in the deep ozark mountains of arkansas at all (laughs) and i mean, just out there in the middle of nowhere you know so yeah there are a lot of just unexplored and unseen places you, you even know, within our own country.
2: When you talk about how much information is in, in Sanderson's book, and if, for those who haven't read Sanderson's book, it's really true. If I were teaching the subject of Sasquatch in a college, Sanderson's book would be required reading.
0: I, yeah, I, I absolutely appreciate his his attempts, and, and really he hits the target more than he misses, of trying to be as straightforward, as factual, and as as down the line as he can go with it. Um, you you really have a hard time sometimes when you're reading him picking up where he's at on a subject, unless he just tells you, because th- he just kind of reports things. And
2: some of that too, I think is because he was a zoologist. So I'm sure some of that plays in there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like when he has an opinion on the, the, uh, the creatures, you know, the Brooks and uh, now I can't think of the other guy's name that in the Himalayas, the monkeys, because they had tails, mm-hmm. you know, um, when, I remember reading that story just as a, an offhand as we were trying to test to see if I could do these readings and, and then see, encountering it in the book again, which was kind of interesting, and seeing Sanderson's kind of take on it about, you know, these are, these are probably monkeys of some sort. And uh, I, I just really appreciate that about him. He'll tell you what he thinks if he knows what he thinks, and if he's kind of unsure, he'll leave it out there and give you as many facts as you can to try and decipher it yourself, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the way it is even with this subject. Sometimes, you know, you have to, uh, you know, in the absence of evidence, you try to piece together what you do know and then come up with some kind of a hypothesis to fill the gap until some information comes that fills that spot.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I, and I appreciate that. I, I I think I told Tom early on, too, and I've, I've had conversations with some other people, and You know, for me, when you're dealing with people's testimonies, because you go back to like the Bible itself is really just about people's testimonies. These are their experiences. You're you're hearing their stories. This is what we experienced of, of, you know, who God is and and people get bent out of shape because that's supernatural or whatever. But you're still dealing with human testimony, you know, human experience. And if you take one person, you know, like Sanderson says multiple times, it could be a hoax. But if you keep getting the same stories over and over and over again and with the same thing from different people, you know, often independently, you start having to sit up and pay attention to it and say, well, is there something more behind this or why is this happening?
2: And especially at and, that uh, time period, because there wasn't all the, the mass information, you know, rapid information transfer that there is today. So right. when, uh, when, when the early people in the subject would get these stories and it was usually. You know throughout time and over and geography and you had like you said all these matching details then that's a little bit more than just you know people's imaginations at that point
1: that was the whole purpose will member of bigfoot in history is looking back in the end of the past and digging up these repeating patterns demonstrating it right Absolutely. absolutely um these eyewitness testimonies with people that did not have connections, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have any of these mass media. Even the newspapers back then really didn't have, I don't know how much sharing of information there was, but you had these repeating patterns. And then you go back further, and then you go back into ancient colonial Mm -hmm. times. I call it ancient, but you know, the colonial times. And then you go back Further into the Native Americans, and the story is the same, very, very much so,
2: yeah, it is absolutely and um you know, like you said there <clears throat> there wasn't any no cross contamination, so you know when when the original people in this started taking a look at it and and I'm sure they were stunned when they started started seeing all these similarities by these people who were totally unconnected, they weren't seeing things, and even you and I can relate you know when we were kids. You know, in the early 70s, I mean, yeah, there was TV and radio and newspapers, but there still, at that time, wasn't a lot of this topic out there.
1: No, no, there wasn't. And that's the thing that you and I look for quite often with, you know, with people that we interview and that we talk to and, you know, just the stories, the accounts that we get, the encounters. You get these nuggets of repeating patterns and you take it in its totality it really does add up to something
2: yeah absolutely
1: and Jeff you mentioned you and I talked a while back on the importance of the rules of evidence so for mm-hmm. example um, and I found this interesting that in a court of law science was lower than personal testimony
0: yeah yeah i've i've read and studied this a little bit i and i use the analogy i think this is what you're talking about i shared it with you i like to use this analogy with people because science science can be for lack of a better word science can be fooled evidence isn't always flawless and interpreting evidence is certainly not flawless so i like to use the the analogy for this of lance armstrong because most people still know who lance armstrong is um According to science, Lance Armstrong is a five-time Tour de France winner who is clean as the driven snow when it comes to drug use. He, he passed every drug screening. You know, they, he never failed a single one. It was only years later that the testimony of his teammates caused him to be stripped of all five of his titles. And so testimonially, Lance Armstrong cheated when he raced in the Tour de France. But according to science is as clean as can be and that's a real stark difference between the two worlds of evidence science is not as perfect as people want it to be testimony is very powerful and human testimony especially when it can be corroborated because it didn't just take one witness to lance armstrong to bring him down it was his whole team Um, testimony has a lot of power in transmitting what evidence sometimes can fail to to really make, make the case for
2: it's a difficult concept today because you can have the, the opposite of that too. You know, if there's a, if there's a lot of people, you know, more, you know, the court of public opinion, so to speak, um, instead of people actually listening to testimonials and and giving them the weight they're due.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we, we live in a, a time when a lot of testimonies are getting shut down, like nobody, nobody wants to, uh, you know, listen to something that they don't agree with. And it gets even more difficult, you know, Sanderson talks a lot about throughout the book, he, he harps on the experts, and he likes to put quotes around it. um, (laughs) a lot. you know, because we we've seen that even in our world, it's, you know, it's interesting how little things change in 60 years, people are still people. And you have the experts who are invested in trying to lock down their own particular view of something.
2: Absolutely. And who
0: will dismiss out of hand all sorts of evidence brought by other testimony um, and even dismiss other real evidence like physical evidence of things based on a preconceived notion. And
2: and that holds very true with this topic because I know Tom and I are dealing with some... uh, uh some people right now so we we've shown them a great deal of evidence you know of, mm-hmm. of many different kinds if you're going to have a living creature it's going to leave these different types of evidence and we have you know really good materials but people will dismiss it out of hand simply because they don't they don't want to, they don't want to believe it
0: yeah
1: yeah they want to fulfill their they want to support their narrative and you get a lot of that i think when you get somebody who is Honestly, Will, we've talked about this, the debunkers versus the skeptics. Oh, yeah. And for whatever reason, there's a knee-jerk reaction with so many people to just, they got to get their two cents mm-hmm. in and, and be a debunker. And, and they haven't really thought it through.
2: And the debunker and a skeptic are two completely different things. I personally love so. talking to skeptics because they have great questions. Ooh. They have great perspective. And skeptics are people, that probably 90% of the population. And especially with this topic, and and you get a fringe on one side that'll believe anything and a fringe on the other side that believes nothing. And neither one of those really do a whole lot for me. I'm interested in all the people in between because they ask hard questions and it makes you work for good answers.
1: But they also will seriously consider the answers to those hard questions. A true skeptic will. That's right that you know you may not sway them right away but they will at least consider that and whereas the debunkers you're just pounding your head against the wall
2: i always i always go back when we get on kind of this topic you know what renee de one of the favorite things he used to say was he he looked at me one time i asked him something about a phd and he says he says whenever somebody tells me they have a phd i ask him what the prognosis is and I kind of looked at him quizzically, and I said, what do you mean? He says, he raises his eyebrows, you know, kind of that, that comical, like, oh, what do, you, what do you mean? What am I doing wrong look? <laughs> and he'd say, I thought they told me they had an incurable brain disease, and I wanted to know what the prognosis was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I've said something similar to what you were talking about, Will, too, And that I, you know, as a pastor, as, as somebody in that field, I, I appreciate people who ask questions, particularly people who ask questions That because they're, they're actually looking for information. I, I can't remember who I heard talk about it. He said that, you know, the the old saw that there's no such thing as a dumb question. And he's like, in a sense, you know, that's right. When, if the question's being asked to gain information, then it's never a dumb question. But if the question's being asked as a got you, I already know the answer. Yeah. Then it's a dumb question. Right. Right. And, uh, (laughs) And and the the debunkers are in that second category. They're asking if they ask questions, they're asking questions because they've already got the answer. Yeah. If it's- I had somebody approached me a few months ago who, I love these conversations because I, I've learned how to respond to them over the years of life. But they said, uh, "What do you think about you know so and so topic?" And I started, and she goes, "I said well," and she goes, "I already know, you know." What the answer is, basically, I don't remember how she phrased it, and I was like, "Oh, interesting. Do you now?" <laughs> and proceeded to launch down a list of questions of my own instead of trying to to answer the first question, because I think asking questions and forcing people to think about the answers is a lot more valuable.
2: It is in every area of life. It absolutely is. You're correct.
1: Well, Tom. Well, listen, guys. Oh, go ahead, Tom. I no, I just want to say, Jeff, I really appreciate. Uh, I was thrilled when you and I talked the other day and, and we're going to have you on this show and I think we're going to have you back on if, as long as your schedule permits. Um, so before we wrap it up, um, do you have any questions for either Will or I uh, before we call it a show?
0: Well, you know, I, I do want to express my appreciation for you guys letting me come on and just kind of chat with you guys about this particular topic. Because like I said, I, I like to read the... The chapters as straight as possible. I know Tom and I have had a conversation about. There's been a couple of times I've broken down laughing, um, probably <laughs> partly because of his phrasing right. and the chapter 16 with the scat stuff just about had me. So, <laughs> I, I, I told Tom if I ever really wanted to, I could create a blooper reel. Because <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when like- I. When I got to the phrase "Shinsy babies," I was I was on the floor and laughing for about two minutes solid. Um, that was just, just it, it was so ridiculous and funny <laughs> at the same time. But you know, there's there's the random outtakes of things that I mispronounce and realize I've mispronounced and stuff like that that would actually make a funny blooper reel. But um, I, and I've still got all the, the raw recordings on top of the ones <laughs> I send you guys. But. Um, yeah, some of this stuff, you just kind of, you read it, and it just hits you funny. And, and my wife has even commented to me as well. She's like, I don't know how you read that with a straight face. I'm like, it was about the fifth take. That's how I read it with a straight face. So, <laughs> you know, but I really do. I just wanted to say I appreciate you guys letting me letting me do the narration and have that, oh. that opportunity. And, and appreciate you guys letting me come in on a conversation like this just to talk about the, the book as well.
2: well we, we certainly appreciate you. You know, every way we can certainly thank you for coming on with us and, and doing the midweek show for us.
1: Well, Tom. By the way. Go ahead, Tom. I'm going to say one thing real quick, and that is there's a connection between Jeff and Amelia, and Amelia's sister, I believe. Jennifer, we had her on a year and a half ago. while well, she was, uh, she had a sighting in Arkansas, and I think she worked with the DNR oh, or something yeah. like that. right, right mm-hmm yeah so yeah, that's my sister-in-law sister
2: yeah yeah you'd be amazed who so you know she, that's uh... seen something yeah, yeah. all righty well if we don't have anything more fellas that'll wrap it up everyone thanks for joining us be sure to stay tuned for the midweek show In Bigfoot History, near Ridgefield, Washington, early July 1963, Mr. and Mrs. Martin Henrich, Portland, fishing on Lewis River, saw what they assumed was a tree trunk near the bank suddenly walk into a thicket. It was beige in color and bigger than a human. Mrs. Henrich told her story to the Oregon Journal, and as a result, Jim Arion, son of Charles Arion, who had a farm nearby, went looking for tracks. He found 16-inch prints leading in and out of the river, on the south bank near the railway bridge. I saw some of these when they were several weeks old, and made a cast.
3: Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevening and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The Glen Thomas Story I was supposed to be watching a cat skinner as he was fire trailing, but it was awful cold, and I walked a mile or so down the trail because he had no need of anyone at that time, and I thought I'd warm up and see the country, up where he was, It was cold, and the east wind was blowing. A little further down, it was a west wind coming in. It was late fall, the last week in deer season, I think, in 1967. It was a mountain trail. They have several of them up there, footpaths, and four horses, too. The elevation was about between four and 5,000 feet. I came out lower down, into the fog, before I saw anything, and the fog was freezing on the trees because it was so cold, but if the wind would blow, the fog would break off and fall down, and well, that made it kind of noisy. It sounded like walking. I came around a bend. Well, first I noticed some rocks that were turned over. All the other rocks were wet because of the fog, but these rocks were dry. Then I looked up. "'about forty or fifty feet up on a ridge of rock, "'and I saw these animals there. "'Looked like human, or just about. "'Large male. "'The female wasn't so large, and a small baby. "'Well, not really small. "'It was moving with them. "'It was standing up, mostly. "'The two older ones were squatting down "'and, well, sort of bending "'as they picked up rocks and smelled them. "'They were kind of careful.' They moved on for a few minutes, and then finally the male found possibly what he was looking for and dug real fast down into the rocks, which were large boulders, well, not, not the round type of rocks, but the flat, sharp kind. I could not explain why these rocks were there. There hadn't been a slide or anything. They were on top of the ridge, so they wouldn't have come down from anywhere. They are loose quite a few holes underneath them and they are as if they had been broken up definitely not the round river rock type uh, but they the animals would pick them up and after they smelled them they would lay them down on top of each other they didn't just lay them back down where they picked them up they stacked them up in, in piles and when the male found what he was looking for he really made the rocks fly The big rocks weighed fifty, sixty, or even possible 100 pounds. He just jerked them out with his hand. He didn't seem to take any precautions for his safety. Later on I looked, and there was some rock that could have fallen on him, but he wasn't concerned. He brought out what appeared to be a grass nest, possibly some stored hay that small rodents had stored there. He dug through that and brought out the rodents. It seems... "'They ate them. "'The rodents appeared to be in hibernation or asleep or something. "'There were about six or eight rodents in the nest. "'The small animal, I noticed, only got to eat one, "'but the others got two or three apiece. "'But about that time they became aware of my presence "'and, well, just became alert. "'I was alongside of this trail that follows the ridge,' I didn't remember getting there, but I was squatting down beside a small tree when I became aware of where I was. As soon as they realized I was there, they suddenly began to move, real quiet, behind some low hanging limbs on a tree there. I didn't see them again after that. I tried to follow their tracks in the direction I thought they would have to go, but I couldn't find any, although there was frost there, but the next day I found Two tracks, one heel print and the front part of the foot, the toes, "'but they were in a different direction, "'the direction from which I had come, "'and I never did get to connect them up "'with exactly which direction they had gone or know anything about them. "'The footprints, I would say there wasn't enough of of the track to tell. Uh, "'They were possibly five inches wide, I, I don't know, at the widest point. "'I don't think they could have been six. I didn't know if it was one of the animals I had even seen that had made the footprints. I saw the toe print as it came out of the old landing. I saw the heel print as it went in. The heel print gave me the impression that the heel protruded. The tracks were in dirt. It was just as if you had a level piece and scooped it out for about two feet. And it would cave in or something. And the animal had stepped down into that and left a heel print and as it stepped out on the other side you could see the toe print. When I left the cat skinner he was on Low Creek but I had walked to Jim's Meadows possibly a mile or more. I saw the footprints between where the cat skinner was and where I had seen the other animals. After the animals disappeared I watched and looked for a few minutes and then decided I didn't want to go in that direction. So I just headed back. I didn't tell the cat skinner about seeing them. I didn't tell anybody about it until, well, Bob asked me to ask among my crews. Maybe some of them had seen them. That was the only time I had even mentioned it to any of the fellows out there because I didn't want anyone to think I was a nut or something or other. The only time I saw their faces was when they became alert They gave me an impression of having a face a little like a cat, without the ears. I couldn't remember seeing the ears. It seemed like the nose was much flatter. It didn't stick out like a man's. The the upper lip was very short and seemed very thin. I couldn't remember that it had a chin like a human has. So, somehow or other, I felt that it was a face more like a cat than a human. "'the male was darker than the female, dirty, dirty brown, "'where the female was a buckskin or fawn-colored animal. "'The male had much longer hair on shoulder, head and neck, "'and and hung in strings, like you see on an angora goat. "'He was much heavier in the shoulders than the female. "'From just above the hips, the, the male got larger. "'He had a very wide small of the back,' From there on up, well, he just got bigger and bigger. Then, well, they had very rounded or stooped shoulders. The head was set lower on the shoulders than, a, than on a human. They don't seem to have the neck stand up as we do. Most of the time, they were not standing, but were squatting down, leaning forward to pick up the rocks. I didn't see them stand actually erect until the the moment they became alert that I was there. Uh, I didn't see them walk, as such. The only movement I saw was when they made a quick, short dash to get behind the limbs of the trees. I saw them move all right, but in a humped-up, stooped-over position, just moving across the rocks. But they were upright when they made that quick dash at the end. It seemed to me that the mother picked up the baby in her lap and ran, holding the baby in front of her, possibly right below the breast, and her breast hung real low, much lower than on a human. I couldn't say how thick through the body these animals were, but they were very heavy set, particularly thick and heavy at the small of the back, and then on up through the ribs. I think the male was over six feet tall, but I'm an awful poor judge of height and weight or anything. I didn't think the female was as tall as the male. In fact, I think she... "'came possibly up to his shoulder. "'But I saw them standing up so little "'I well, I didn't know, but they were much larger than a human, "'much bulkier. "'The baby didn't come up to the mother's hips, actually. "'I don't think, but I don't remember for sure. "'The first time I saw them standing up "'was as the male stepped out of the hole "'that he dug with the grass, "'but it was only a very short while until they took off. "'I didn't, you well. Know, I didn't see them after that. Question, how did they eat? Oh, they ate just by taking it in their hand and eating it as one of us would if we were eating a banana. They ate it, skin, feathers and all, but just bit it in two, and as they would bite part of it, well, then just cram the other right on in. (laughs) The little one, though, he had a little more difficulty because he couldn't quite have enough room in his mouth for all of it where the older ones did it wasn't like a human would hand the food to the baby he had to get his he was scratching through the grass that uh, that he had got and got it himself and the female did the same thing that gave you the impression in that way of not taking care of the baby like people would i've been wondering now if that group lived together as a family and I hope to go back and look into it deeper. Question. Did you form any impression of the proportions of, say, the legs in relation to the rest of the height? Would they be like a long-legged man or short-legged? Oh, I don't know. I I couldn't say for sure. But the arms were such that when they squat down, they have to bend forward to pick up anything. Their arms are not long enough to reach. Uh, this one that was digging just seemed to go right on down. I didn't remember seeing him get up, but as he was down there, well, he was just digging, and he kept on going down, and, well, at that time, I couldn't exactly see where where he was because I was down, and they were up a little bit on the side of the rock, which kind of levels off some, and, well, he went down, and so I couldn't see exactly what he was doing down in there, but I did see when he came out, at that time, I was a little bit nervous. But I'm not sure. Now about half of it seemed like a bad dream for a while. I just couldn't believe it. It was really happening. I just couldn't believe But it is. Question. Did you notice the hands at all? I noticed that it had hands. I did not notice if it had thumbs. I couldn't tell from the way it worked... It didn't seem to use the thumb, and I didn't see any ears. I didn't see any knees projecting when when it squatted. They were in an awkward position because of the rocks, and they couldn't just squat down like we would on a floor. They would be on different levels and off too far to be comfortable. That's as close as I can explain it. When they went from place to place, they would shift in position according to the terrain. The male, well... Actually, both of them seemed to be moving in a certain direction, possibly from tracing the small rodents. I thought possibly it was the scent left by the rodents coming up through the rocks because it was not a runway that they would have been picking through because they were just picking up the rocks any place, and as they picked it up, they'd turn it over and smell it, and then they'd lay it on the stack. They left it very different, definitely, in a pile. They would leave anywhere from three to fifteen or twenty-one pile as they would reach back, and then, oh, six to eight feet farther, they'd leave another pile, starting laying them together in another pile. With Renee and my daughter Catherine and son Jim, I went with this man last July to the spot where he had seen the three creatures. We found the piles of rocks to which he referred, not only at the spot he showed us, but on almost every other area of broken rock we found in two hours of scrambling around on the mountain. There were obviously piles manufactured by something or someone. The rock could not have just rested that way naturally. And there were dozens of them. The hole he saw the male Sasquatch dig was about five feet deep and almost as steep-sided as a well. No bear or anything else without hands could have lifted out the rocks. A man could undoubtedly figure out a way to do it if he had any reason to take the trouble. But in this case, the story had only come out as a result of an inquiry from someone else who had seen footprints in the snow in January of this year, and there was no reason to expect that anyone would be coming out to look over the site. This ends the story.